I do have a prayer request. That I, I want to... Okay. My niece's little boy, name is Toby. He's almost a year old. They just found oh, yes. out yesterday that he has brain tumors. Oh, geez. And he's, he's in he's in surgery right now. Oh, my gosh. At least a 20-hour surgery. It started this morning. Oh, my gosh. It's still going on. Oh, we'll have Toby. He's in not even one yet. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Is that the one that had the other affliction? Um, no. Okay. All right. Wow. I can't even imagine that. Okay. We, it says it's going to start in 15 seconds. So I'm sure YouTube is still is already uh, uh, working. But anyway, uh, we'll get to mom's not here yet. She's always late. Pat, is Pat already gone? I don't think I'm not she, sure when they were leaving. I don't, I don't know. know. I she leaves They won't be here I, for I two, think week, so. yeah. two, two weekends. Yeah. And so they may not be here at all today. I don't know. We're just going to get started because it is on. So, um, Okay. We want to read, um, Jim wants to read, uh, starting in verse 41, Psalm 119, starting in verse 41. And read loud because uh, we want to make sure that uh, folks can hear. Uh, wow or Vav? Vav, yeah. Vav. Uh, ten peg, add, secure, hook. Three different words that also mean it. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who, haunts, who taunts me. For I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I am... I, and I meditate on your decrees. Oh, no. No, he just wrote verse 45. Oh, sorry. Well, what's that? He just wrote verse 45. It says, I, I, I will walk at liberty, university. Yeah, we're not there. We're in Sarasota, <laughs> Florida. We're not at liberty. Oh, gosh. That's, That's what I tell my granddaughters. I will walk at liberty. Yes. That is too funny. All right, so we are going to be week. today in Romans chapter 1 when we get there, but we got to... Uh, we got a few prayer requests. Let's see here. Darla, I don't think she's left yet, but her husband, or her, uh, sorry, her brother, she's got to go up to be with him because he's got cancer. Oh, no. And we have Toby, the child that's in brain surgery right now, one years old. And, um, oh boy, we have, uh, I got, uh, well, I might as well tell you now, and then we'll find out again later. Uh, hopefully more people will come. If not, you're all going to be stuffed when you leave. Um, a oh. person named David O., he just said to say his last name is O. He gave us money to buy pizza tonight. So we have uh, pizza coming. And um, uh, and he also, you know, th there's some things we can pray about for him. He's not able to work in his job currently. And uh, uh, anyway, he's an ex-Marine, I guess retired Marine. And uh, he served in Da Nang. So uh, he was right there in the thick of it all. And uh, we'll lift him up in prayer. And then I had several other people that I wanted to pray for. And... I, I mean, literally, right now, they've left my mind. But we also have one other thing here, which is um, uh, we have pizza from Dave, and then we have from Tracy and um, Andy. They sent us 36, and this word is wicked. It's not wicked, okay? Because oh. <laughs> this is a church. They're wicked. Um, they're whoopie pies. Now, uh, she lives in Maine, and um, uh, uh, I got this in, and I was talking to Sergio and Rhoda on the... Um, FaceTime, and I said, oh, look at what came in the mail today, and Rhoda saw that, and the first thing she said is, 
are those from Maine? And she said, well, they went to Maine a few months ago. And she said when they were up there, she said they are really, really good. She said she came back and tried to make them, and she could not. And uh, so anyway, um, I, I'm doing this because if they are watching the Romans Bible study right now, we will be having wicked whoopies. Wicked. Actually, wicked, actually. But anyway, we're calling them wicked here in the church. Uh, we'll be having this. And here's the law of the whoopie. Everybody gets one whoopee. There's 36, and if we eat here, and then on Sunday, you can't have a second whoopee because <laughs> the people that are coming Sunday that weren't at Bible study, I want to make sure there's enough for all the people at Bible class and for church. So everybody gets one whoopee. So we have all right? Honest. Yeah. And uh, yes. May I do maybe do a prayer. Thank you. Okay. Thanks too. Okay. Because uh, I heard that the thank you department's a lot smaller. It's very small. Request. Okay. But uh, a relative of mine is in surgery too. Okay. Now it should be coming out at five o'clock. But she could not have children. She went through fertility treatment. Right. And was not. But she had fertilized eggs. So I said, your children will be in heaven waiting for you. But now she has breast cancer. Oh boy. And so she's in surgery, but. The notes are clear. Oh, good. All right. Well, so let's. Let, all right. We'll go to Lord in prayer. Lord, you have heard all of the people that, uh, and several that I have forgotten about right now. I just, I'm so sorry. And you know who they are, Lord. I've had lots of prayer requests in the past uh, couple days. Another person comes to mind is Robert, and uh, he's got some ongoing uh, uh, requests for prayer. So, you, you know, you, every one of these and all the burdens that are on our hearts and also the praise, even though she has breast cancer, we want to lift up um, her cousin for praise as well as for petition on behalf of her. Praise for the fact that she doesn't have lymph nodes that are, are uh, affected and prayers for her continued healing. And then we also pray for Sandy. She's not here. Uh, pray that that radiation is working on her. And for uh, also Darla and Craig who attend on Sunday mornings and his uh, continued battle with um, prostate cancer. We want to lift them up. So Lord, you know all these things. And uh, we would ask that you would be with each of these people and all the others that I failed in remembering right now. And uh, Lord, be with these people, guide them, and uh, just help them through their times of trouble and trial. And Lord, um, we want to commit this uh, next time, hour and a half or so, to you, and we want to, to hopefully uh, pray that the word will be handled carefully and properly and that you will be glorified through it. And we just thank you for all that you've done for us, how great you are, O oh God. And uh, so once again, we do commit this hour of uh, study to you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ah, ah, ah. Okay, we are in Romans today. I think it's verse 1 4, if I'm. Yes, 1 4. So, uh, please go. It starts mid sentence. Uh... Yeah, go ahead and back up a little bit. Just read, start from the first verse because it's all kind of ongoing sentence. Paul, the servant of Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power, with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection. Okay, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Just worded differently, that's all. That's why I read it again. Um, give you my notes on there, and uh, we'll just... Yeah, okay. Uh, Paul completes the opening portion of his statement, 
which comes prior to the addresses of his letter. So as you can see, verses 1 through 4 were all a continued opening statement. And um, anybody know when the verses were added in as far as numbered numbers? 1500 and something, I think. 1560 was completed by Robert Stephanus, and it was put into the Geneva Bible. That was the first Bible <laughs> that uh, uh, has the uh, breakdown by verse number. The actual... Um, chapter divisions were done first by a guy named Cardinal Hugo Santo de Caro, and that was about 1030 AD, I believe. And they do not use his divisions. Somebody else did it later. They used those divisions. And you can see how they were inspired. If you go through the Bible, you can see patterns that run all the way through both the chapters and the verse divisions. And then the Geneva Bible was published. It was the Bible which really brought the gospel to America. The people, the, the pilgrims and the Puritans that came over had the Geneva Bible. And um, uh, anyway, the King James Version is pretty much, and I hate to use the word, but it's pretty much a plagiarism off of the Geneva Bible. If you compare them side by side, they're so, so close that they, they did very little beyond that. But there are some differences. But uh, uh, the Geneva Bible really was the standard for Bibles at the beginning. It's hard to read. It's like reading the original King James Version before they made 10 million changes in it, and today the King James Version is not at all like the original. It's completely different. It's uh, updated in both uh, terminology, and it's also updated with a lot of the errors out of the original. Um, so anyway, uh, you you uh, uh, kind of follow the progression of uh, the Bible you know, from like John Wycliffe all the way through and how we got the Bible. And I don't mean to divert on this, but I just wanted to kind of bring this out that when we read these verse divisions, one through four is actually one thought. And sometimes the verse divisions don't seem to be, you know, appropriate, but they are. Uh, uh, believe me, when you see a verse division in the Bible, the hand of God was well, behind it. this one starts like mid-sentence. It does. And that's, like I say, the reason why is because the guy broke it up into logical sections in one language or in one translation, it'll make sense. In another, it won't. And then you'll also see some words carried from one verse to another because when you restructure it, you know, to say the way that the NIV is translated rather than the, uh, the uh, whatever, the New King James Version, they just restructure it. And so the word may actually have to carry over and do another verse. And that's why there are some variations in those things. It's not something that we need to really get all excited about. Some people do. Um, but uh, uh, that, somebody asked me some questions about the Bible uh, this week, and um, apparently he watches the uh, Bible studies. And so one of these days I'll go through the history of how we got the Bible we have right now and how we can know the different variations in the, the source text, which led to the different translations, and how it's not a conspiracy of any kind. You know, people are told, oh, it's a conspiracy of the Catholic Church, or it's a conspiracy of this or that, or yeah, that was Satan involved in. And we know that it's not. Okay, we've gone through that in this class several times, but I'm not going to do it today. I just want to explain why this verse seemed cumbersome when one of us read it, when the other one, it sounded a little better. is because it's different translators using the same Greek words and translating. You know, when you translate something, when, you know, if... I was to have a sentence in Japanese, and I was to take it to four different translators, because Hidako was a translator of both English into Japanese and Japanese into English. If I took it to four different people, they would completely differently translate that one thing that I asked them. Completely. And uh, they may use different characters, they may use different words, and if I was, you know, to take a German sentence, and if three of us in here understood German, and we were to translate it, none of them would be the same. 
There's nothing evil. There's no wicked intent in here. There's a, a desire to translate as you see is best. Um, and then, you know, especially with, you take the, the Geneva Bible and the King James Version and things like that, uh, the older versions, they didn't always have a grasp of the, say, the Koine Greek or the Hebrew that people nowadays do. And so over the years, we have refined things like metallurgy. We've refined things like um, the names of stones and the, uh, the types of things that happen in the natural world that, you know, one of the things, here's a good example, um, the King James Version, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the King James Version says, um, uh, quoting Jesus, um, uh, speaking about where the eagles flock, uh, where you, uh, there will be a dead body. Now, I misquoted that. But eagles don't flock like that, okay? Vultures do, okay? And it, now you'll always find somebody say, well, there's one breed of eagle that lives in Siberia that does, it, that's, not, that, that's not even rational. That kind of stuff is not even rational. They're trying to justify a version of the Bible based on something that isn't rational. It's vultures he was speaking of. So what I'm trying to say is when somebody translates something, if they don't know um, or, ornithology, which is a study of birds, they're just going to say this word, which is in Hebrew especially, one word uh, pretty much encompasses all of the predatory birds. You know, you got vultures, you got eagles, you got ospreys, you got... So you have to understand what is being said and by who, and that's why there'll be different translations. Anyway, don't want to get into that, but I want to explain why your verse is so different than ours. So here are my thoughts on verse 4. Um, Paul completes the opening portion of his statement, which is which comes prior to the naming of the addresses of his letter. This verse states that Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God dot, 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 by the resurrection of the dead. Okay, what what does that tell you? I, does anybody? Uh, it, maybe I'm asking this the wrong way. It makes it sound like he became the Son of God because he was resurrected from the dead. Okay. Uh, this has wrongly, these are my comments again, has wrongly led to the belief and occasional teaching that Jesus was only officially declared to be God's son because of the resurrection. This is not Paul's intent here, okay? Jesus is hinted at as the son of God even in the Old Testament and explicitly noted as such throughout all of the Gospels, okay? Paul is writing much later than the Gospels and he was already noted as the son of God. What this is stating is that the resurrection is the sure proof of that fact, okay? His conception by the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb is all that is needed to assure that Jesus is the God-man. However, his resurrection proves it. That's why I say, when you give somebody the gospel and you say, uh, you know, you have a sin debt that needs to be paid, the wages of sin is death, and all have uh, sinned, therefore we're all dead spiritually, we're disconnected from God, and then you give them the good news, but the uh, uh, gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Well, there's a point where you have to say this is supported by something or it's just words. You can be Jehovah's Witnesses making stuff up out of your head, right? You have to support it with something and the support is the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. The resurrection is true because he came out of the grave. The most documented uh, occurrence in all of antiquity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the most fully attested to thing that you will find anywhere in the ancient writings. Anywhere. Yes? Mine reads the Son of God with power. With power. That's right. Okay. They, they always questioned his power. He said that you'll know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's right. Take your bed and go. That's right. So, with, with power. power. Yeah. That's right. And he, But this confirms it. And not only that, it confirms the power of God 
in the resurrection, which if you think about it, and I, I, I may have already published this uh, Ephesians commentary. If I haven't, it'll be out in a couple days. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, as far as I'm concerned, it is as much a work of God as creation itself. All of creation, we can look now, before they just looked up and they saw pinholes in a dark covering at night and they said, oh, look, those are stars. Now we know that stars are real powerful things that the Earth is insignificant compared to. And then we built the Hubble telescope, or actually before that, Hubble discovered that those stars out there aren't stars at all. They're more constellations filled or galaxies filled with billions of stars. And then the Hubble goes out and they see that there aren't just a few but there, there are billions of them, billions of galaxies. I was looking at the astronomy uh, picture of the day today, and they show this beautiful spiral galaxy. Looks like this, right? This is, and they name it, and they tell you all about it, and you say, oh, isn't that beautiful? And this is the spiral galaxy that you see. And then, believe it or not, if you look closely, you've got these little things that are all, just hundreds of them around this one galaxy, and none of them are stars. They're all galaxies. You can see the spiral shape in them. And this is just one little portion of the night sky. And this one that they're highlighting, but every one of these are galaxies. And every one of those has got stars that are infinitely more powerful than the, the, the volcanoes and things that are going off in the Earth. You've got this majesty of power. And I am convinced in my own mind that the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was more than all of creation itself that what God did in that was more astonishing as far as his effort, his creative effort, or whatever you want to call it, because it's not a creation, but what he did in the creation doesn't compare to what he did in Jesus Christ. He completely defeated everything that this points to. In other words, this is all pointing to an end, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is pointing to no end. But, and you mean no end. not only that... He was able to breathe again, right. and walk upright, and talk intelligently. But what he did for everybody, past, present, and past, future. present, and future, everything that he is doing from the resurrection on, and but it led up to it, you know, the fulfilling of law and everything. But the resurrection and everything embodied in that supersedes this because this is winding down. Yeah. Second law of thermodynamics. It says that energy in a closed system is winding down. There's a point where, without God sustaining this, this would be cold matter. There'd be nothing left. It would go down to a point where there was no heat, absolute zero, which you can't obtain. Why can you not obtain absolute zero? Because they try and they can get very, very close, but they can't get it to it. It's because there's always heat around the, the receptacle that they're trying to get down to absolute zero. But there's a point where all of that heat, which is energy, is winding down. And if this existed forever, then we wouldn't be here. It would be infinitely cold already. Because there was no beginning, if the universe always existed, then there would be no energy left. Energy in a closed system is running down. If this, because the universe is a closed system, if this was uh, eternal or infinite, then we wouldn't be here because it would already be worn out of its power. Right. That shows you that it had a beginning and that it is being sustained. The fact that it had a beginning is Genesis 1. We know that, Genesis 1.1. The fact that it is being sustained is from Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. By him all things subsist. He is currently holding it up. But it doesn't matter if he's holding it up if it started at a certain time, but eventually it would matter because all of that energy would be gone. But what I'm saying is that all of this has a natural end. We know that. 
Jesus Christ coming out of the, the grave has no natural end. He's declared the Son of God with power. It will, it will go on forever. If this word is true, and I have every reason to believe it, it's fully substantiated itself, then there is no natural end to our existence because we are in Christ. That is, if you think about it, what happened at the resurrection and what is going on in the resurrection of Christ is more magnificent than that. And looking at that is an incredible thing. So, anyway, um, we'll go on. Um, uh, let's see here. And let me read that one more time, what you just read. Yeah, declared to be the Son of God with power. So you're right. Um, okay, so um, uh, what this is stating is that the resurrection is the sure proof of the fact. His conception by the Holy Spirit, oh, I read that already, um, and the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb is all that is needed to assure that he's the God-man. However, his resurrection proves it. Here are the necessary points and two syllogisms which work backward from the resurrection to demonstrate this. Now, a syllogism is, just so you know, let me get my eraser, and I'll show you just so when I give it to you, you'll understand what I'm doing. A syllogism is a syllogism. It's a, it's, it's a way of thinking things out. You have two basic ways of thinking. The first is dicursive. Um, Carol is over here, and she's saying, oh, i got to go shopping when I get home. And then she says, oh, Charlie, sign the bell. And then she says, it's cold in here. That's dicursive thinking. You're just going random thought to thought. Okay? The other is syllogistic thinking. We all do it. We, what? Oh, yeah, that's what we all do. But we all do that, but we also think syllogistically. Okay? We say, you got this thing. You go up to a, a, a river. And in the river is this thing. And you look at it and you say, oh, that's hard. Look at it. It's very hard. And then you say, it's, it's uh, black, okay? And it's um, heavy. And it's, um, what else? Uh, uh, I can't eat it. And all of a sudden you syllogistically come to a conclusion that this is a rock. You say, oh, we think. Now, we, don't, we do this instantly now. When we look at a rock, we say, there's a rock. Or when I look at that leg, I say, that's a leg. But in my mind, I have to say, there is an object there. That object is being supported by something. That something is attached to the ground, and there's a seat next to it. And I say, in my mind, immediately, I syllogistically think, that is a leg. I go through all of this information that quickly. And that's what we do all the time. We don't realize that we're doing it. But I am making a conclusion based on evidence. And we do it in everything. Tom is out there riding around on the mower, and he hears it go, pup, 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 and he says, that thing's making noise. And then he, he says, it kind of smells like, and he says, oh, I must be out of gas, right? I, so he has to stop, and he has to fill up his tank. You are thinking that way. So I want to give you a couple syllogisms concerning, it's just a way of saying an argument. A syllogism would be an argument, okay, why something is. And I don't mean an argument fighting. I'm talking about a logical argument, okay? So here we go. Um, Adam sinned, and uh, through him all have received his fallen state, okay? The Bible treats this as an axiom. From the very beginning of the Bible, Adam sinned, and then every person after that <coughs> dies. Every person after that does something bad. Every person after that, you just, all the way through the Bible, we don't even need uh, things like the 51st Psalm to tell us that we're born in sin. We're conceived in sin, we're born in iniquity. We know it. But the 51st Psalm just simply confirms that. Anyway, so we know that Adam sinned. We all have inherited that. The only two people that have never died are because God intervened and he took them out of the stream of time, Enoch and Elijah. But um, the Bible treats this as an axiom. We are, as Jesus said in John 3.18. What does John 3.18 says? Because everybody knows John 3.16. He that believes in him shall 
We have a scholar in here. He that believes is not condemned. He that does not believe is condemned already. That's all there is to it. He's condemned already. He is dead in his sins and trespasses. Whether he committed his sin or not is irrelevant. He inherited from mom. He is cut off from God. We're born cut off from God. That is what Jesus from said. Dad. What? From dad. From dad. From Abba Father. That's right. We are completely cut off from them. And that's what the Bible teaches. Nobody ever remembers John 3.18, but to me it's convincing of an argument of uh, what we need to do as John 3.16 is. John 3.16 is just putting it in the positive. Anyway. 3.18 is to send that sends people. That's right. Wait, no, it, 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 it's not that it sends us to hell. We're on, we're on that road already. We're on the highway to hell. It is our default position. What we need is to be changed from that default position. Okay? So here is where we are, condemned already. Christ comes, and he says, I can change that for you. That is the good news about Jesus. So John 3, 18, we're condemned already. Sin transfers through the man, but not through the woman. We've talked about that. That's symbolized by the rite of circumcision cutting away the sin nature. Does everybody remember that? Does anybody not remember that? Because if you do, it'll take one minute and I can go through the picture of circumcision. Everybody's got it. Okay, so um, uh, and, and that's all it is. Circumcision <coughs> is a picture. That's all it is. It is no longer needed. Real quickly, we'll go to Galatians uh, just to uh, read that because people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be repeating and again the sermon on Sunday as far as um, uh, uh, no, no part of the law. No part of the law. If you say, I'm going to please God by doing this thing under the law, you are alienating yourself from God. If you say, I am going to tithe in order to please God, that's a precept from under the law. It's been beaten into our heads by preachers for the past how many years, and so you think, I got to tithe. But the Bible doesn't say that. Tithing is not required. It's something, if you want to give 10%, give 10%. If you don't want to give anything, don't give anything. You know, the Bible does say in Galatians a couple things you should do. Support this, do this. But tithing is just like circumcision. It's just like any other precept under the law. It is fulfilled in Christ. Um, anyway, um, what does he say? Um, uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. He goes um, on all the way through chapter 5 of um, uh Galatians, thank you. He diminishes circumcision. He says he goes so far later to say that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you have fallen from grace. You are a debtor to the whole law. Now that doesn't mean that if you were circumcised as a child, you're a debtor to the law. People circumcise their child for cultural reasons. They do it for health reasons. If you say though, if you're an uncircumcised person, and we got eight guys in here, and if one of us is uncircumcised, somebody convinces him, you have to be circumcised in order to be right with the Lord, and you say, oh, I've got to go get circumcised, you have fallen from grace. Because you're already right with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what it's saying, okay? So if you're circumcised, don't worry about that. Every precept of the law is done. Every precept of the law, all of them. The ones that are repeated in the New Testament, we are required to do. There's a couple of them. Of the Ten Commandments, Nine of them are repeated, so we're required to not kill somebody, right? Like, I'm sorry, what happened in Dallas was not appropriate, and those people will be judged by God. That's all there is to it, okay? Okay, um, uh, so cutting away the sin nature is what circumcision pictured. Thus, there was a need for a man to be born of a woman, but not of a man. That takes us right back to Genesis 3.15. Your seed will crush the serpent's head, right? Uh, this was hinted at in Genesis 3.15, 
the man is Jesus. Let me uh, real quickly read you Genesis 3.15, because I... Uh, okay, um, what happens is uh, Adam, uh, Eve is deceived. She gets the man to eat the fruit. Um, she's deceived by the serpent. And so what does he do? He turns it around and he goes in the opposite direction. First he curses the serpent, and then he goes to, um, in Genesis 3.15, in the curse of the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Jesus, it's not the church. People try to say it's the church, or they try to say it's some other thing. It is Christ, the Messiah, all right? And the word seed, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see it is pointing to this one that's coming. It always speaks of the seed of the man in the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? It's always the seed of the man. Uh, the two daughters say that we need to uh, sleep with our father of Lot. We need to sleep with their father so that um, his seed will continue on. Now, it's a misquote, but they're speaking of the seed of the man. All right? Except this one time, it's the seed of the woman. Why? Because all of these men will eventually lead to a woman who will have a child without a man. Okay, so it's the seed of the man, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, all the way down, except this one instance. Um, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Happened right there on the cross of Calvary, right? Then he turns around and he curses the woman and then he curses the man. He goes in the opposite order of what actually, uh, uh, what occurred, okay? So, the man is Jesus. That is what the Bible reveals in the New Testament. The Old Testament foreshadows it, it pictures it, typology, and we know somebody is coming. They knew somebody was coming. You know, people say, they, you get people that say that, oh, people didn't realize that there would be a resurrection, okay? And you hear that. You'll hear preachers say things like that. Well, they, they didn't know about the resurrection of the dead. Of course they did. Old Testament, it's all over there. It's in the book of Job. It's in the book of Isaiah. It's in the book of Daniel. But, we don't even need to go there. All we need to do is continue on with the people under the law at the time of Jesus when at the, uh, the tomb of Lazarus. And he says, um, uh, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection of the dead. Well, guess what? That's New Testament, but it's not New Covenant. It's, they're still under the Old Covenant. They're still living under the law of Moses. They knew under the law of Moses, before Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, that there would be a resurrection of the righteous. They just didn't understand the process, that it would have to come through Christ. Okay, So when people tell you things like that from the Old Testament, they're not thinking things through. It is all through the Old Testament. The resurrection is something they knew was coming. It's confirmed in Martha's words to uh, Jesus. It, it, they knew. Okay. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, so I, I've said the sin transfers through the man, but not the woman, um, that which uh, symbolized by the right of circumcision. There was a need for a man to be born of a woman, but not of a man. That was hinted at in Genesis 3.15. Jesus was born of God and Mary, and therefore he was born without inheriting Adam's sin. Okay, everybody understands that. The sin travels through the father, not through the mother. But every woman on earth has a father, and so every woman is included in condemned already. All men, all women, condemned already, with one exception, Christ, okay, because he has no human father. Um, uh, so, and yet he is fully human. He was born without inheriting Adam's sin, and yet he was fully human. The resurrection is 100% conditional upon the virgin birth, and that's why I said, I think it was in the Romans class here, it might have been Sunday morning, but uh, if you deny the virgin birth, 
to somebody, then logically they can never be saved. And I've said this about um, what is a heresy and what is bad doctrine. You can logically receive Jesus Christ without ever knowing about the virgin birth. You just don't know about it, and nobody talks about it, nobody discusses it, and you receive Jesus Christ as Lord. The virgin birth is almost never brought into a, a presentation of Jesus, right? When we're downtown, we never bring it up. But if somebody says, I want you to know there's a, a person that can bring you back to life, and he is um, going to uh, do that, he promises he's going to do it, but he was not born of a virgin. That's a, You're going to read that in the Bible, and I want you to know that's not true. If you tell somebody that, they will never be saved because they now think of a different Jesus. They now have a concept of a different Jesus because the virgin birth is inextricably tied up in his sinless nature. That's all there. Yes. I, I use a New American Standard for years, and because of some of my King James brothers, they would go back to it and say, yeah, but your one in Galatians 4, 4 says, born of a woman, don't say a virgin. And so they would get on to me about that, but uh, me being ignorant not of what I call it uh, of great uh, scholarly stuff I figure if those guys translate it as such as overall the scripture says it's a virgin right it, it, that's right if you take the, all of the, the Bible in context if they want to say born of a woman or born of a virgin irrelevant Matthew 1 or is it Matthew 1 or 2 anyway one of them whichever uh, it, it, he calls her a Parthenos it's a virgin it doesn't mean anything else than that so that, that's, that is what I would call semantics. King James-only people are famous for that. Well, this says this and this says this. Well, that's semantics. They say he takes out the blood. Well, guess what? In other versions of the Bible, the Alexandrian text inserts blood where it's not even mentioned in the Byzantine or the King James uh, source text. And so how can that be wrong on this instance but not be right on this instance? It, 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 it all comes down to just bad theology. She was a virgin. We know that from Scripture. We don't need to worry about semantics of somebody translating a, a word one way or another. Okay? You're right about that. Um, so, the resurrection is 100% conditional upon the virgin birth. No virgin birth equals no resurrection because inherited sin would disqualify that. Okay? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We inherited it from our first father. If he was born not of a virgin then he would have inherited Adam's sin, okay? And he would not be the God-man, and he would not be capable or qualified of uh, taking you know, taking away our sin debt, okay? 100% conditional. As I said, you don't need to know about the virgin birth in order to be saved, but if you are told that the virgin birth is not true, you're not going to be saved. You now believe in a wrong Jesus. Now, everybody understand that. The difference between bad doctrine and heresy is a heresy will keep somebody from being saved. But guess what? A person that espouses a heresy can be a saved person. It's the next people that have to worry. In other words, you get people that just teach something that's bad. He was already saved when he was young. The Lord has not forgotten that. But he is espousing something that will keep the next person from being saved. That's what a heresy is, okay? You've got to be careful about that. Bad doctrine. He is a mid-trib rapture person. He can't be saved. That's the stupidest thing on the face of the planet. Yeah. Uh, uh, one lady that I see, she posts on Facebook all the time, if you don't support Israel, you're not a true Christian. It, it, it has nothing to do with it. As I say time and again, you get, go down to the Aborigines and uh, the outback of Australia and you ask them what's Israel, and they say, I don't know. And yet they know who Jesus is. Supporting Israel is a point of doctrine. So we've got to be careful how we treat doctrine and how we 
attack other people over doctrine. If their doctrine is faulty, we can say that doctrine is faulty. But you don't say they're not saved because of it. That's that's crazy. Um, okay. Um, uh, no virgin birth equals no resurrection because an inherited sin would disqualify that. This is why, and this is a point that everybody here needs to understand. When a baby dies, okay, does a baby come back to life? If a baby is two months yes. old, no, I'm, I'm saying if a baby is two months old and it dies, is it going to come back to life? Not physically, but spiritually. That's now I'm asking. Is that baby going to stand back up after it dies and is it going to no. be, uh, no. Why? Because that baby inherited Adam's sin. Babies do not resurrect because they inherited Adam's sin. And I'm talking about standing up right now, resurrection. I'm not talking about the future. We don't need to get into a side issue tonight. Babies do not resurrect when they went out and offered their babies to Molech, right, in the Old Testament. That baby did not resurrect. And secondly, that baby didn't take away their sin. Because all you're doing is committing a murder by your sin-filled being, and you're trying to expiate your sins with a a uh, baby, the baby is already contaminated with sin. And so all you've done is committed another sin. You've killed a human being, and you've done nothing for your own sin, and you've also just taken away that baby's chance of any future. So, um, oh boy, you shouldn't do that. That's oh, You should have had one of us do that. She brought mangoes. So don't do that again. Those are way too heavy, and some of those are ripe right now, so you grab a couple of them. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, having said that, uh, this is why babies don't resurrect even though they have never committed intentional sin. They inherited Adam's sin debt. Okay? So, um, as far as babies resurrecting in the future, if you ever want to talk about it, I'm not going to do it tonight, but I can tell you what the Bible says about that. I can take you, if you want to uh, do your own study on it, all you need to do is go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. That'll answer all your questions about uh, whether a baby is resurrected or not. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Uh, you know, this thing about... Uh, I won't get into it. Um, anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Um, however, the virgin birth... Now we've established that he needs to be born of a virgin in order to save us, right? In order to prove that he's the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. Right? Virgin birth. However, the virgin birth doesn't guarantee the resurrection. Does it? No. Why? Why does the virgin birth not guarantee the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, what could have happened after he was born? He was born under the law of Moses, right? Yeah. Could he have broken the law of Moses? No. Then he wouldn't be qualified, would he? The virgin birth doesn't guarantee the resurrection. It only means that he's qualified now to replace Adam. That's what that means. But he was born under the law. Okay, And because he was born under the law, he has to fulfill that law and then give his life up in exchange for ours. So the virgin birth is a step in that direction. That brings us to the next point of heresy, the all-sufficient atonement of Christ. If he didn't fulfill the law, then we're, not, we're, we're still stuck in our sins and our trespasses, and we are condemned forever. We are condemned already. He had to, one, be born of a virgin. He had to, two, prevail over the law. Everybody got that? All right. So the virgin birth does not guarantee the resurrection, nor does living a sinless life guarantee a resurrection if one is not virgin born. Does everybody understand that? You can live your... Per and that's why Paul speaks about that issue so pertinently concerning the law, the law of Moses. You meet every single point of the law perfectly. You're still condemned 
you're still separated from God and you still cannot redeem a single person on this earth because you inherited sin. So you've got different angle of the same thing. The virgin birth doesn't guarantee the resurrection, but it is required. Living under the law perfectly does not guarantee a resurrection if you were not virgin birth born, if you weren't born of God and of a woman. They both negate each other. What you have to do is you have to have a combination of the two. You have to have the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and then you have to have the fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. I never thought of okay. that because I've always been told if you live, if you, there's none righteous, no, not one. You live a right life, and when you sin less, then you be perfect. However, but you do receive no, original you receive sin, original sin, sin. So which is another it. thing. You might as well talk about that. Sing say you brought up the word original sin. Good point. Original sin means creation. So once again, you're back to another point of heresy. Original sin means creation because if man evolved, then there was no original sin. Man did not evolve into a state of perfection and then sin. You can't, in, you, in, you don't understand the logic. Yeah, right, a dog, it, right, there you go. Okay, so creation, the the original sin, which is spoken of in the Bible, implies that God created. Now, you can debate long-term creation and short-term creation, and I got the guy that uh, I won't give his name and, or what he does for me, but he and I disagree on creation. I am a 100% staunch six days creationist, and there's a reason why. is because that's what the Bible teaches. Paul never said that he was going to, um, uh, I don't know if somebody's out there looking in, <coughs> doing something. Anyway, oh, no, it's, it's is, that, is it that guy? Yeah. Oh, okay. You want to get that or you want, why don't you call the police right now? Call, call the police. Mm -hmm. Don't go out there and accost him. See what he's wearing. Oh, wait a minute. That's not him. That's Christian. I, uh, I'm sorry. I, it, 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 Are you sure? Yeah, that's Christian. I this got the police on the line. Hey, Christian, how you doing there? I thought you were that guy, that crazy guy. You doing all right? All right, we're in the middle of a study, but if you want to stay for the study, please do. All right. Yeah, he, this guy, he, he, he's out at the beach. He's behind them all every day. He makes, uh, he takes some, um, uh, what do you call them? palm fronds, and he makes things for people. And so, uh, yeah, beautiful stuff. Anyway, okay, so we got to get back to the study because there's people watching. Um, yeah, I thought it was that other guy, and we were going to get the police out and have him arrested right away. Um, oh, oh, he's crazy. Um, okay, so um, uh, where was I? The virgin birth doesn't guarantee the resurrection. Um, evolution itself is um, uh, not possible because you can't inherit original sin. Therefore, creation must be. If you teach anything other than creation, you're teaching a heresy. And seven day versus... Yes, well, seven days or six days of creation and one day of rest is simply a point of doctrine. And how do you get to that? Then logically, and from the Bible, there is no other option. And I want you to know that. If you want to go through that, we're not going to go through it tonight, but there is no other option than six days of creation. That is what the Bible teaches. Paul taught it. Moses taught it. They understood that only, only, only because... People were introduced to Charles Darwin, and it became a big fad that that even began to be thought of anything other than the truth. And people started to waffle in their convictions about what the Bible says. They started to get scared about, um, uh, you know, it, it, they don't want to look like nut jobs. I don't care. I'd rather look like a nut job believing in the Word of God than to say that something that has now been completely proven false, which is Darwinism, 
has any semblance of reality. And so I think it was a Presbyterian minister back in the 1800s made up these, these concepts, which started us in the long-term creation uh, mode. And people have stuck to it, but the Bible does not allow it. And I want you to know that, and I can defend that, but we're not going to get into that today. The thing that I'm concerned about is what he's speaking of about the resurrection of Christ right now. That is the issue. Creation is involved in the resurrection of Christ because you cannot evolve into original sin. So that is a point. Um, resurrection is one, I, I've said that, um, nor does a sinless life if one isn't born of a virgin, both the virgin birth and a sinless life, both are a condition for the resurrection. He's born of a virgin without sin. He lived under the law without sin. They're both the condition. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he would have inherited Adam's sin. But even if he was born of a virgin, he still needed to live the life perfectly, sinlessly throughout his entire life. So here are my two syllogisms. I'm going to write them down so that the people online can see them. And um, uh, if you get bored and you say, I want to leave here, I want you to know in advance we're going to have pizza afterwards, and you're welcome to stay. So, uh, uh, it, But it's going to be another 45 minutes. Anyway, I, I love this guy. That is not the guy that I was... <laughs> I, yeah, Christian is a very wonderful human. Um, okay, one. This is our first syllogism. The resurrection... R-E-S-U-R-R-E-C-T-I-O-N. All, all a syllogism is is just a logical defense of something. Is conditional... Conditional... I know my handwriting is terrible. Upon a sinless life, right? Everybody's got that. No sinless life, no resurrection. Okay? Um, uh, a sinless life, sinless life, S-I-N-L-E-S-S, -S, life, is conditional upon the virgin birth. Is conditional upon the virgin birth. Everybody got that? Okay? No virgin birth, you can't have a sinless life. Sinless virgin birth. I'm thinking and I'm writing, okay? And so, therefore, the resurrection, therefore, ergo, therefore, uh, there, F-O-R-E, the resurrection what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, R-E-S, resurrection, I'm sorry, my handwriting again, the resurrection proves what? No, proves the the resurrection, it, what? Born of a virgin. Virgin birth, that's right. A syllogism is something that one point logically leads to the next. So you can write this down at home. And uh, the resurrection is conditioned upon a sinless life. A sinless life is conditioned upon a virgin birth. Therefore, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. One thing leads to another. Okay, that's your first syllogism. All right. And this is, you know, we do this, and the reason why I'm writing this out is because, like I say, we think of this in every single thing that we do in life. We look at the leg of a chair, we've already done it in our head. We logically have gone through a million different little calculations before we even say the words, that is a, a leg, okay? So, but when you see it written out, all of a sudden you realize why you think the way you do, and why when you think incorrectly which liberals do all the time. If you read, the, uh, syllogisms have to have the proper distribution. This point, this point, this point, this point, this point, this point, and they have to match. If they don't match, then it's, an, it's not a true syllogism, okay? And you read people's articles when you understand how to properly distribute the points in a syllogism, and you make a syllogism out of what people write to the editor, 
you find out that liberals never think clearly. I'm sorry, they never, never think clearly. Everything is, it goes like this. Yeah, the premise. The premises have to match, and they have to be properly distributed. And guess what? This went all the way back to the time of Aristotle. Aristotle, that's right. And yet, I have to tell you what, they never think clearly. And that's the problem with the world today, is people are not taught critical thinking. And so it doesn't matter what you say to them, they will never agree with you because they are screwed up in their head. And that's the problem. So, but with the Bible, with the Bible, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. I'm going to write this a little shorter so, to save time. The resurrection proves, right? We just got that from the last syllogism, right? Proves the virgin birth, okay? So, the virgin birth, the virgin birth proves... Uh, what is it? Uh, Jesus was born. Jesus was born of God and Mary. It, it has to be, based on what we've already come to, God and Mary. Or we could just say woman, but we'll, we'll give her the credit, because she is the mother of the Lord. Therefore, ergo, therefore, Jesus is God's son. He is the God-man. The God-man. And you can get that right out of here. The, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. The virgin birth proves Jesus was born of God and Mary. Okay? Because he was born of God and Mary. Therefore, Jesus is the God-man. He is God's son. Okay? It's a logical uh, conclusion that you make. And we don't think this way because everything happens in our minds all at one time. But we know that's true, but now you know why that's true. It's because syllogistically you come to a conclusion based on uh, a, a couple of premises. Okay, having said that, when you read the newspaper and you learn how to do syllogism, you get the book called Critical Thinking, and uh, you read it, and it'll tell you how to think critically, because we're not taught that anymore. It's a little hard to understand. I get the most recent update because the older ones, they have some errors in it. But uh, you can get it on Amazon for almost nothing because every college student in a decent seminary, and there aren't many left, but every one of them has taken that course. I have a copy of it. Edico is studying it right now. But it'll show you how to think clearly on any issue, not just these things. It'll show you how to think clearly. And from there, you can say, now I understand why the Bible says what it says. Okay? Because normally, we don't come to these conclusions. We just say, well, I was taught that... You know, people can roll around in the, uh, the aisle and they can make funny sounds, and that's church, right? And then you read what Paul says about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and you go through the syllogisms in your mind, what is logical, what is appropriate, and you come to the conclusion that's all but a bunch of nonsense, right? Because you know what Paul is speaking about. You study what he's saying, you look at the original Greek words, every time that the word tongue is used, it means a known language, etc. You go through these things. Once again, diversion, but I'm trying to give you points about how to think clearly. Even dispensations, because dispensations you can't reconcile some things together because they won't fit. That's right. A determination. If you understand the premise of what he's doing, then everything will fit together. That's right. But Dispensationalism is proven true just by clearly thinking about the Bible. When you don't think clearly about it, of course you're not going to see that. You're going to say, well, Revelation is apocalyptic and, you know, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is mentioned six times in two paragraphs doesn't mean what it means because you're not thinking clearly about the, what God is doing in redemptive history which is clearly t 
taught in the Old Testament, and therefore Revelation is speaking of what was taught in the Old is now being revealed in the New. Anyway, you're right. So dispensationalism also takes care of that problem. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, where were we? Resurrection proofs. Okay, the resurrection then is the definitive declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with power. I know it took a long time to get there, but because of what we see in the virgin birth and what we see and what we know about man inheriting sin, about all of these things, he was born without sin, he lived without sin, the only way that could be is if he was born of God and a woman, therefore he is the God-man, and it, the resurrection proves that. Because without, if there was a, no resurrection, then you wouldn't have any proof of anything. If there is a resurrection, then we have to logically go back and say, there must have been no sin involved in this resurrection. And the most incredible thing about that is that if he was resurrected, and he promises that we are now free from sin because of what he did, then that means he died with our sins upon him, and yet they didn't enter into him. They were talk about Teflon. We talk about Teflon with like Bill Clinton and you know the guy we have up there right now. They don't know what Teflon is. I'm telling you what the sin that we carry with us is completely wiped away. It's completely gone. It didn't stick to him, and it is washed away from us. We are completely freed from our sin debt because of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. I, I, simply, and that's why I say about the, the creation itself and the marvel of the creation and the power and the wisdom to come up with, you know, if we can split a single atom and we can destroy an entire city with that single atom, right? Imagine the power that is in this universe. I mean, seriously, think about that. The, the immense amount of power, if we have those billions and billions and billions of galaxies all filled with helium and all of these other things, you know, all these other materials that we can split and, and, and blow up all these things, imagine the power of God. And we just, you know, we think, oh, we don't have to treat him as holy. I can't imagine. I can't even imagine it. And yet I am fully convinced that what we just talked about with the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more, more magnificent than all of the creation that we behold. Because he just spoke that into being. He spoke it, it into being. His it's word. Expanding. But the redemptive process that took from the beginning of Genesis 3.15 all the way to Revelation. That's right. It, it, it is an entire process which is going on in the stream of time. In the free will of man, and yeah. he still has still control. To I, I, that is what's incredible. i got to tell you what. That is what's incredible is that he, you wait until I get to one of the sermons coming up in Exodus pretty soon, and I talk about the numbering of the people. He, it, it's not the actual numbering. He's told to number the people um, for a certain thing. I think that's coming up in three more sermons because we have this week and then we have the um, special sermon from Ecclesiastes and then I think the third week is going to be the numbering of the people. And I make it a, a, an argument very similar to that is that how precise it is. And we read over that verse, actually two verses, we read over them as if they mean nothing, and yet everything that happened from the moment of creation is involved in that verse, right? You wait. I just If you think it through logically, the wisdom of God is so far advanced from what we can even possibly possibly consider. What, okay. What verse are you talking about? Um, it's in Exodus probably 29 or 30. Let me real quickly see if I can find it, and then just, just ponder it. Um, it's probably real quickly... Uh, uh, 30, yeah, here it is right here. Exodus 30, um, 
12. When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. And then he says, verse 13, this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. You haven't spent a lot of time on those verses, have you? Let me tell you what. You could spend you could spend a lifetime on those two verses. I'm going to just real quickly summarize them, but you could you could literally go back to the very beginning of time and you could spend every moment of time contemplating those two verses and how they fit into what he is going to do. And even then, there's we could never grasp it. You'd have to count every human being that ever existed, every one of them that moved off to Africa or moved off to China. Unbelievable, I'm telling you. I'm just, it's going to be a very quick analysis, but it'll get you thinking about what it took to write those two, those two verses. Okay, um, uh, the resurrection is the definitive declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with power. Within this verse is also the note that this is according to the spirit of holiness. This is probably speaking of the fact that Jesus is both divine and human rather than the Holy Spirit. His divine nature, perfectly demonstrated in his sinless humanity resulted in the resurrection. Could be this Holy Spirit, but I'm, I'm saying that it's probably speaking about his divine nature. Okay? Either way, because Jesus is, uh, because both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are fully God, the end result comes out the same. Within the Godhead, Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, therefore his spirit is divine, and the Holy Spirit testifies to this. Okay? There's another point of doctrine right there for you before we go on to the next verse. And we got 33 minutes, so it'll be fine. The point of doctrine is that you cannot logically tell somebody that there is no trinity and have them be saved. Okay? You cannot know that, and you can be saved. Because people say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's the one that died for my sins. And that's what Paul says. You tell them this, and they believe it. God brought him from the dead. But in their mind, somewhere in their mind, this is what I'm trying to, 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 to show you how we think. Somewhere in a person's mind, they say that person came out of the grave, right? That's what you tell them in your gospel presentation. Somewhere deep in the recesses of their human understanding, they know that this person was without sin. You may not have told them that. You've told them that this person came and he lived and he gave his life up in exchange for ours. But somewhere, if they believe that message, they know in their mind that this was a sinless person. That's not normally a part of the gospel presentation, but they know that. And so if you tell them that he is not this thing, or he is not this thing, or he is not the second member of the Trinity, which is the point I'm bringing up right now, in their mind, they are now having a disconnect. And they are not going to be saved because you have taught them a heresy. So you see how the mind works. The mind works in these syllogisms. We just don't know that it does. And when we make a faulty syllogism on a subject, we end up writing a bad letter to the editor because we now have something that is screwed up in our brain, right? And that's why I say, the more that you study, the more that you pay attention, the clearer your thinking will be. And when somebody presents you with an argument, you can say, well, that's nonsense, and here's why. They're not going to listen anyway, but at least you can tell them why. If they're willing to learn, then they will start to reprogram themselves. That's why liberals sometimes become conservatives is because they start to reprogram and they start to say, I understand what is going on in the world. I am now gathering what is going on in the world and why this is a perverse way of thinking. But very few people are willing to do that. Yes? 
You're talking JW there. JW. Jehovah's Witness. Oh, absolutely. I have a friend who was in the JWs, and he said, I had the awfulest timber with the Trinity. Right. He said mm -hmm. it took me like... Because they were programmed years, wrong from the beginning. Straight. He I said, was only in there for three months. I started out because I'd never seen anybody open a Bible in my life and actually read it and say, we do this in the church, which isn't a church, by the way. But um, I went there for three months because I thought, well, they opened their Bible. They must be, you know. And fortunately, I was down the road reading the real Bible, and I was reading it 10 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I, after a couple months, I realized... Well, that doesn't match at all what this says. But if I didn't have that introduction into the reading of the Bible by myself, I never would have known that. I never would have come to... But those stupid thoughts that they put into your head stick. I mean, two years later, I was still thinking, you know... Oh, it, 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 I'm telling you, it's an infection. And here's another thing. I want to say this right now because last week I read Table Talk magazine and a lady emailed me and she was panicking. She says, I, I can't believe... You're, you know, you teach this and that, but you don't believe in dispensationalism. And, and I said, no, you misunderstood what I was doing. I was refuting. That's why I read Table Talk, is so that I stay abreast right. of what they teach, because you can't refute somebody unless you know what they teach. And so when I read Table Talk, or when I talk about uh, Reformed theology, it doesn't mean that I believe it. It means that I want to understand it, and I want to stay fresh on it. Because if I stop reading Table Talk magazine in three months, I'm not going to be able to defend dispensationalism with a Reformed theologian at all. That's why every day you have to read God's Word, and you have to be in the study of it continuously. Because if you're not, you're going to forget these things. It's just human nature. I mean, if you, I left Wastewater how many, eight years ago? I'd be completely lost going back in there. Completely. But I kept up my license, so they'd have to take me, and then I'd, just, I'd be lost getting paid for it. But anyway, you just forget things. That's, what, that's natural. How much more forgetting the most important document on the planet? Right? I mean, we have to be in this all the time. Um, and you have to have the right instruction. That's why, oh boy, I tell you, that's why I say, you know, I, I, it might be this week, might be next, I think it's this week, I'm going to cite one of my favorite scholars. This guy is so intelligent, and yet I'm going to read a whole paragraph, and I'm going to say, this is completely wrong analysis. Yeah, and I do that not to diminish him, but I want people to know you should not listen to and take for granted the comments of even the finest scholars. I saw somebody post one of those cheesy memes. How do you say it, oh, meme? Yeah. They, they, yeah. They, they, they posted one of them on Facebook, and it was spot on. It said, until you've checked with this, don't believe your pastor, preacher, or priest. Oh, that's good. And I thought, man, that is absolutely, I don't care how nice the guy is. Yeah. Unless you know what this is saying, don't trust what he said in the pulpit. Because he is probably going to be wrong if he's standing there without his notes directly in front of him and reading from them. He's just talking, and nobody can remember an entire 30-minute sermon perfectly without introducing. John Hagee is famous for this. That guy just completely misuses the Bible. Completely. He is, he is such a poor handler of God's Word, and it's unfortunate because he's one of the finest speakers I have ever heard in my life. But I wouldn't listen to him for five minutes for the rest of my life because he mishandles God's word. He just flippantly says things. I wouldn't listen to him at all. You've got to be a Berean Christian. You've you got to be a Berean Christian. I'm very, very sorry to say that, too, because it, 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 it's sad that somebody has such great abilities, and yet he just piddles them away by convincing people with his great oratory skills instead of his great uh, adherence to Scripture. Anyway, um, uh, okay, so um, I've said that. 1-5. We're in a new, new verse. Through him, 
And for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Ah, oh, oh, what a verse. Okay, let me read this one too, just so we have a different rendering. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Very close, but a little differently worded. Through him is speaking of who? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Through Jesus, the one born of the seed of David as a human being, and who is the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's he's referring back to that previous verse to show us this, okay? It is through this God-man that Paul has received grace, all right? Anybody here that thinks that they're going to merit heaven is wrong. If you think that you are earning God's favor by doing nice things for people or helping little old ladies across the street, you are not. You are never going to merit God's favor unless you go through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be pleasing to God the Father than going through the Son who he sent to redeem us from our sins. That's what the more, yeah, and that's why I said in that sermon a couple weeks ago is that people get it all backwards. Go into a Methodist church and what do they tell you first thing to do? Well, let's go out and build somebody a house. Unless you've taken care of your sin debt, you can build houses for the rest of your life and not be one step closer to God the Father. Not one. The first thing you should do when you go into a church is have your sins toned for through Christ. And then every good thing you do after that is just great. Pat on the back for you, buddy. Here's a reward for eternity. But if you are trying to gain rewards before coming through the atonement, you'll be building houses for eternity and never getting there. Okay? Um, through him, speaking of Jesus, um, uh, according to the power of the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, it is through this God-man that Paul has received grace. Grace is unmerited divine assistance which is given to us and which will carry us through every need and step of our spiritual life in Christ. If you want God's grace, trust in it. He will give it to you. Whatever you need, and I'm telling you that the Christians that are over there in Syria that are being hung on crosses and, and beheaded, they are receiving the grace that they need at that moment. Christ will give you the grace that you need for every single instance in your life. All right? It is a virtue which comes externally from God and without our assistance. You can't earn grace. Grace plus works ain't grace. And grace and relying on yourself ain't grace. Either you are receiving grace and it is from God, or it's not grace. Okay? Grace is grace. You can't have that mixed with something else. Um, okay. Um, it cannot be earned because it is unmerited. This is the heart of the gospel. What we cannot do for ourselves... God did for us through his son, okay? That is the heart of the gospel right there. We are on an ocean, we're sinking, and there's nothing we can do, and the divine hand came out and pulled us out of the deep waters, okay? That is, that is the marvel of what Jesus Christ did to us. We cannot do anything for ourselves, and yet he came down and did it for us. Paul also states he received apostleship. Now he says, let me read that to you again. It says here, um, through him we have received grace and apostleship. Okay, that's speaking of him and those like him. It's not speaking of us. Okay, we haven't received apostleship. We have received grace, but we have not received apostleship. We are not apostles. The apostolic period, I mentioned it last week, ended with the word amen at the book of, end of the book of Revelation. All right, the apostles, uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible explains who apostles are and what the requirements are for it, but I'm not going to get into that today. Apostles are something that, if somebody claims the title of apostle, he's doing it without thinking it through or without, you know, reading the Bible properly. <coughs> um, 
Okay, um, it must be understood that this letter is written from Paul as an apostle to those who are the called of Jesus Christ and saints. The called of Jesus Christ is verse 6, uh, and saints is verse 7. He is not stating, and I, I just said that, and I didn't look at my notes or I could have saved all that, but he is not stating that we are apostles. Apostleship is a commission, and it is designated for a certain group of people at a certain time in redemptive history, sometimes called the apostolic age. Jesus founded his church and anointed a group of men to establish it and then to receive and retransmit his message, which is the Holy Bible. The apostolic age ended with the sealing of the book of Revelation. Because of the purpose of the uh, because the purpose of the age ended at that time, okay? The whole purpose of the apostolic age was to issue in God's word written by the apostles and to establish the foundation of the early church. And from there, it went almost entirely to Gentiles. We are in a Gentile-led church age, okay? There are Jews all the way through. God has always uh, had a remnant of saved Jews, but this is the Gentile-led church age. The apostolic age ended, okay? The purpose for that age ended, and we have it right here in our hands right now. Um, far too often, people uh, attempt to claim titles to which they have no right, such is the case with the title of apostle. Paul's conti Paul continues by stating that he and those... Let me, oh, let me get a pen. I'm sorry. Hang on one second here. No, I got one right here. I just need to uh, really quickly make a, a, a quick note on this, and I'm sorry about that, but I just don't want to forget what I'm doing. Um, Paul continues by stating that he and those so commissioned have received this grace and their apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Obedience to the faith is the gospel message. Not the works associated with it, but the very basis for any works belief. Okay? It's, the, it's speaking of the gospel itself. Works are something that are added on after faith. They're not, they don't come before faith. Alright? Mm -hmm. The gospel is one of faith which comes by grace. What verse is that? <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Thank you. Alright? Um, the calling comes first, and it is united with faith. Mm -hmm. Only then is a title bestowed. In Paul's case, he is an apostle. That means he's a messenger. He's a sent one. The designation came after salvation, not before. And therefore, his commitment to the gospel message preceded his commitment to carry out the task of proclaiming it. Let me read that again. The designation, apostle, came after salvation, not before. And therefore, his commitment to the gospel message preceded his commitment to carry out the task of performing it. Okay? Everybody got that? You get a commission, and then you carry out the commission. You don't right. do the commission first. Go ahead, Bert. Grace before apostleship, salvation before service. The Lord Jesus said, Come unto me, and 1 John uh, 3.23 commands all men everywhere to repent, right. to receive the gospel. John Wesley was on his way to the mission field, and he realized that he wasn't a believer. Yeah, you know how that happened? He was on the, the boat on the way over, I think, and it was the Moravians. This guy was... He, he, did you hear what he said? Read that first quote again, and I want to explain what you just said. The first quote. Uh, grace, grace before apostleship. Right. And uh, uh, salvation before service. Grace before apostleship, salvation before service. And that's exactly what I had just said there, and he has it written in his notes, because there's a logical order to things. John Wesley was going over to be a missionary, and he realized he wasn't saved. He was going service before salvation. And that's exactly what all churches do nowadays. You go into a church and they say, come on in and do a bunch of good stuff. 
and they never get to the salvation part, and therefore the service means nothing. It means absolutely nothing to God. It might mean something to the guy that gets the new home, but that's just a temporary thing. It's going to burn down or it's going to get, uh, you know, uh, uh, you don't pay your bills and foreclosed, whatever. It's a temporary thing in life. The person's eventually going to die. The house will fall over because of a her tornado or a hurricane. I mean, we have to get our boxes right, and the box is salvation and then service. And all of these churches focus on service and not salvation, and that is where they have departed from God's word. Beautiful, beautiful quote there. Faith, Thank you. Faith is, the, is, is to, uh, faith is obedience to God. Right. Because God commanded people to repent. The gospel is intended for this obedience, and obedience to the faith rests upon the gospel. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, the yeah. One, one hinges upon yeah. the other. Yeah. That's exactly right. Good, good point. All right, um, we got a couple more minutes, and we'll finish this verse up. Um, um, the gospel is, I've already read that, this is the logical progression for each person who is called, what I said and what he just said also. The grace is given, the faith is exercised, the title is granted, and the carrying out of the task is conducted. Far too often the logical progression is violated, and therefore confusion or cunning, and I hate to say it, but that's what many churches are involved in, cunning takes over. How many carry out the task without the calling? How many claim the calling without the faith? How many claim the faith without having received the grace? If we follow the logical and necessary steps of the faith, we will keep from straying and not and our doctrine will be pure. It is obedience to the faith which will bring honor to Christ. Let us not skip steps or run ahead without proper foundation, lest we bring reproach upon the glorious name of the Lord. Okay? Oh, look at this. Hey! Okay. Just bring it right on up here. I want the people on, uh, we've got people watching streaming online around uh, the country, and Thank I want them control. to see that we're going to have pizza here. <laughs> oh, well, perfect. So, here, here. here. You know what? I've never given money to you guys. and I, 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 oh. I, No, it's my fault. Oh, I, no, I, no, no, I, no, no. I want you to take it. I'm so sorry. You know, tell the ladies down there, it was never intentional. I just am in the study, and I never thought. So today, in advance, I thought. So take All that. All right. Now. Well, thank you. All right. Have, yes. a, have a good day. You too. So everybody that is watching right now is going to start saying they get pizza and Whoopie pies. Whoa. Hey, I can't believe it. Yes. Calling. I went into the, the American, well, the Zodiotis. Zodiotis. And he says it is identical with converted. Calling and converted is, is the same root word. And I, I, I don't know. It may be the same word, but it's a different context. And that's a problem because one thing that people will do is they will take strongs. And if you see people say, well, James Strong says, and they cite the word number, well, all that is is 50 different possibilities of translating. That word can be translated 50 different ways, and people pick and choose what possibility. It, it may mean the same thing. Conversion and calling may be the same thing, yeah. but they're different contexts. Okay? You have a calling as a missionary, or you have a calling as a preacher, or you have a calling as a, you know, whatever. But conversion is a completely different thing. Well, he it's, had. He also said that, that was one of the titles of believers. Right. The, the called were. Oh well, that's true, and I, I will agree with it in that sense. If you're going to say the word calling as far as the called, meaning the converted, then I would agree with that. Okay. So that that is correct, but that's why context always matters. And when you see people say strong number, don't even read that site. Don't read the commentary. Don't read anything that says because all they've done is they've taken a number and they've said, well, this could mean this and this and this. 
Now, if you want to go back to the root words, that'll tell you where all of those contexts came from and what is the meaning of that root word. That's a lot more important than how this word could be translated as this, 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 based on context. Okay. If they do that, they probably have no idea what they're talking about. So if you see somebody saying, well, strong number could mean or does mean, get away from that. Okay. If they just cite the strong number and they cite a possible translation, that's not a good way of getting your theology. You have to get it from somewhere, and it has to come from context. Context always. Let's before we got a couple more minutes, but real quickly, I'm going to ask you because I did this in the early Acts at least 400 times, and I haven't done it once in Romans. And I want everybody in uh, that's no, watching. Into it. Well, I know, but I I, I I want everybody to know what the five principal. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, tenets. tenets of uh, proper theology, getting your hermeneutics straight are. What are the five principal ones? So Sam, one at a time, very slowly. The first is, is it, is it prescriptive? Okay, and I will say right now, is something pre, prescriptive? Okay, that means, does it prescribe something? Does it prescribe? Okay. Let me ask you something about the Book of Romans. Does the Book of Romans prescribe anything? Yes. Yes. Almost every verse after the introduction is prescribing something. Or it may be given for doctrine, but it is pre prescriptive in its nature. The second one is, is it descriptive? Descriptive. Okay. Does it simply describe something? This is the problem with people getting their theology from the Book of Acts. That's right. Does it describe something? If you get your theology from the book of Acts, your theology is as messed up as a football bat. That's all there is to it. Because, well, you don't use a bat in football, do you? There's no such thing. It's crazy. Well, that's where you get crazy theology. And that's where, I hate to say it, but charismatics almost solely get their doctrine from the book of Acts. And it is convoluted. And they're coming from descriptive verses. How the early church was established and what occurred doesn't mean that it is going to be prescribed for the rest of the church age. The rest of the church age comes from the hand of Paul, from the book of Romans to the book of Philemon. That is our doctrine for the church age. Okay, the next one is what? Context. Okay, is what you are doing being taken in context? Does it match who it's written to? Does it match uh, the, the dispensation that it's written in? Does it match the surrounding verses? Does it match the historical meaning? Does it match the, uh, you know, the, the moral meaning? All of these things come into play. What is the context? Because when Jesus said, no man knows the day or hour, the context was he was speaking to Israel under the law about an issue that was not, had nothing to do with the rapture. Zero. Zero to do with the rapture. When Jesus spoke in Matthew 24 of the Olivet Discourse, he was not speaking at all to the Gentile-led church age. He was speaking to the Jews who were going to go through what was coming and what will come in the book of Revelation at the end of the church age, after the rapture, when the Jews are again God's focal point. Context. The next one is? Context. Number four is context. If you don't have proper context, refer back to verse uh, or uh, number three, okay? Context and context. But the fifth one is even more important. What is it? Context. context. These five rules of interpretation of the Bible are absolutely essential. These are the three that you want to keep in context. Okay? Is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? Context, context, context. Okay? If you don't have that right, 
nothing is going to be right with your theology. Okay? Um, ooh, now my Bible is hot because it was sitting on a warm pizza that we're about to eat. Um, we don't want to get into another verse. because You know, one thing I want to do, if there are anybody watching, because some people do watch this online, streaming, and then other people will watch it because it's recorded. But um, uh, Sergio, he, oh, that's who I meant to pray for. I knew I was forgetting something. I was doing it earlier, but he hurt his back again, oh, and he's been no. bedridden. So he was going to set up something. Um, let me say this to the people that are watching streaming on the Superior Word website. If you go to the YouTube website, the Superior Word YouTube, there's a much bigger chat room than there is on the Superior Word website. And eventually, the Superior Word website is going to go away. We're just going to have the chat room on YouTube. And... Um, uh, secondly, Sergio is going to try, and if it doesn't work, I'm sorry, but I, I, he's going to try to get somebody that knows how to do this, that is competent, to get one question a week right at the end of the class and email it to me, and then I'll answer their question, okay? Hmm. I don't want to promise that's going to happen, but if you're in the chat room and you're enjoying the, the fellowship there and uh, you have a question, you can send it, and, and it'd be just one because obviously we've got a million things going on, but um, we'll try to do that, and if he can't do it, I just, that's why I'm saying it may not happen. But anyway, um, when we close out in prayer, and we're going to close out a little early today because if we get into another verse, it's going to take us long. And that smells way too good to not eat. So um, first thing, I want to thank David O for the pizza. And I want to thank Tracy and uh, Andy. Andy? I just forgot his name. Andy, I think. Um, for the, uh, the um, whoopie pies. And um, then, uh, Tom, would you close us out in prayer tonight? Mm. All right, thank you. Oh, Lord, the pizza does smell good. <laughs> the food that we've received through this Bible study is so much more. What a feast. Lord, is it? Pray for each one here. You just give them the ability to absorb it more and more. And to put it into practice. Lord, I know. You want to say something? Who told you to do that? Yes, Lord. If you will be done, I'll encourage you to come through this surgery and get all the tumors. You just have a healthy, normal job. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, I'm going to open this up to where people can see you. And then uh, give me one second.